Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. More time catching us up. Um, we got this sermon and next week, and we'll be done with the book of Acts. And uh... Yeah. I took names of everybody who just clapped. Bunch of sinners. It's an accomplishment. Yeah, I'm sure that's what was meant. That's good. I took names. We have this on video. Okay, no. Uh, it will be 49 sermons for those of you counting at home, um, which is a good long time. Um, and so, uh, Acts chapter 27. So just catching us up. Y'all threw me off with the cheering. That's what it was. It's off. Um, here's where we are. Paul is on the way to Rome, okay? So he's been arrested, tried unjustly, and uh, has appealed to Caesar as a, he is, um, uh, has the right to do uh, and is now headed um, to Rome. And he's actually boarding a ship here in Acts chapter 27 uh, to sail there. And so and here we go in chapter 27. We're going to read the chapter and ask three questions at the end, okay? So this is, this is kind of the, the plan. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, uh, they delivered Paul and some of other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, uh, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, uh, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So here's what we want to do, okay? I have the handy dandy laser pointer. Everybody ooh and awe. Thank you so very much. So grateful. Uh, can we get the map up there? And so I just want to track along with what we're doing here, okay? So Paul's down here. He's starting here. He's starting down here, okay? And that next little stop up is Sidon. That's uh, what, what was mentioned there. And then when it says he's, uh, there's Sidon. And then it says when he's going to go on the, the coast of Asia there, all these little ports, he's just kind of making his way, bumping along on what is modern day Turkey. Everybody got that? That's what we're kind of doing. All right. So that's where we are so far. I'm keeping the laser pointer handy. Here we go. Um, when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in, Lyca, or in Lycia. So here we are. There's Myra right there. You see Lycia? There's Myra right there. They ported uh, right there, hung around for a little bit. Um, and there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy uh, and put us on board. So they swapped ships. Um, picked up a different uh, flight, so to speak, a different ship, and we're headed there. Uh, this was a wheat ship because um, Rome, the, the Roman uh, government, demanded wheat from various colonies uh, in its empire, and so they were, they were sailing uh, wheat, grain, up to, uh, up to Rome. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. And as, uh, and as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Okay, so here's, uh, here's Crete right in here. Okay, so there's Cnidus right there. Everybody got that? And then they're going to Crete. I'm not doing this to bore you. I'm saying there's a lot of geography in this chapter. All right, and so we want to track along with what's happening. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, uh, near, which was, uh, near which was the city of Lacia. So again, they're still on Crete. They're in the middle of the picture in the island right there. That's, that's where they are. Here we go, verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, this religious marker. 
Um, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be uh, with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So this is um, kind of mid to late October is the time frame. And Paul's going, hey man, this is not a good time to go sailing. Basically from mid-October to mid-February, you don't want to be hanging out on the Mediterranean if you're a sailing ship, okay? Not if you're a cruise ship or whatever, if you're a sailing ship. Um, uh, verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because of the harbor, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. They wanted to get to the far uh, side of the island of Crete. That's where they wanted to get to. Anybody ever taken a journey that you wanted to get somewhere? And didn't quite go like you were thinking. Look what happens. Verse 13. And now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. So uh, a, a cold front essentially blew in. And in fact, uh, the word that Luke uses to describe it, a tempestuous wind, is a, 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 a typhonic wind, a, a wind of typhoon proportions. So here they are tracking along and all of a sudden, oh, a nice south wind. We're going to make it. We're going to make it. And then the cold front blew in and in it came from the northeast and it began pushing them hard. Okay, verse 15. And when the ship was caught, could not face the wind. We gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulties to secure the ship's boat. So here's what happens. Okay. Kata is right off the coast of Crete right there, and they thought, oh good, we've got a little bit, just a touch of uh, relief here, and they secure the ship's boat. So in your mind, you picture a big wooden sailing ship. One of the ways that they would secure that boat is they would take uh, ropes uh, of, of uh, various strengths, and they would somehow uh, kind of loop it underneath the ship, and then they would tie it off. This is well-practiced, well-rehearsed in their lives. For you and me, we're like, uh, that doesn't make sense. But it was to reinforce and kind of keep the thing together, all right? That's what they're talking about about. My page flipped on me while I wasn't looking. I was about to read from a different chapter altogether. Um, <clears throat> verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that it would run aground on the Sirtis, uh, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. They thought they were going to be blown all the way across to Libya, uh, which is, and there's some quicksand and stuff there. That's the Sirtis that's being described there. Uh, verse 18, uh, since they were driven along, uh, since we were violently storm-tossed, excuse me, uh, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So they're trying to not sink, and they're just tossing stuff overboard at this point. When neither sun nor star appears for many days... Uh, and no small tempest lay upon us, no small typhoon again. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Nobody's ever been on a trip that it didn't go like that. And then somebody in the vehicle said, well, you should have listened. Whoever that is in your family, now they have justification because they're like, well, the apostle Paul said it, so... 
You should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God. It will be as exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. And when the 14th night had come, so two weeks, uh, as we had been driven across the, the Adriatic Sea, um, it, what he's talking about is this, this area uh, right in here. Okay? That's, that's, that's where he's... That's where he's talking about. You and I wouldn't call it the Adriatic Sea today, but that, that's uh, often what it was called. Uh, we would call it kind of the, the main part of the Mediterranean, uh, but that's, that's what it was called back then. Uh, the, about midnight, the, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that uh, we might run on the rocks... They let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship uh, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, the, the lifeboat, uh, Paul said to the centurion and to the, shoulder, and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing the wheat into the sea. Okay, that's how much hope or how little hope that they had. Because this ship is supposed to get wheat to Rome, and what are they throwing over? wheat. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking a reef um, that they couldn't see it. It was kind of underneath them there. Uh, They ran the vessel aground. Uh, Where they landed actually has uh, kind of clay mud uh, in there. And so if you stick something in there, it really sticks. And then the, as it says, the, the back of the ship was just getting beaten to death. Uh, verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. I'm like, man, two weeks shipwreck. Like, dude, if they survived that, what, you, what like, Shouldn't you just let him go or something? I mean, isn't that enough? The whole different conversation. Uh, But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept him uh, from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So it was that all were brought safely to land. That's a, that's a chapter right there. That's a good story. Uh, and I got haunted this week by three questions. And I just wanted to share them with you. And hopefully they'll stick with you like they stick with me. Um, coming out of this chapter, three, three questions. First question um, g- goes something like this. Uh, do you genuinely care for the people who are in your sphere, in your realm, in your world? 
Do you genuinely care? That, that's the part for me that, that was sticky. Do I, do I gen, I'm not just like, I care. Not, and not just when they, it makes me look good to care for them, or not just when it makes me feel good to care for them, or not just when they can pay me back in some way uh, because I care for them, or they can do something for me, or I expect something from them down the road. Do I genuinely care for the well-being of those around me? And I just give you a couple of pointers here. Um, from Paul in this situation, uh, back in verse 10, uh, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. You know what Paul didn't say there? Hey, God told me, or the Spirit told me, or under the authority of the Lord Jesus, I'm saying this is going to be a bad trip. He's saying, hey, it's late in the sailing season. This is not going to go well. In my mind, I'm just perceiving that this is not going not to go well. Sometimes genuinely caring for those around me looks like common sense. We have lost that in our culture. It is good for the church to reclaim it. Sometimes it just looks like common sense. Hey, I'm not so sure that doing that will result in kind of the thing that you want. I'm not so sure that going sailing in the non-sailing time is the best idea. Common sense. And it's imparted to kids, it's imparted to our friends, it's imparted to co-workers, neighbors, um, uh, moms and dads that you're in interaction with, it's imparted to um, the folks that you sit next to on the sideline or in the stands or whatever, just common sense. It's, it's just a critical thing that I think, it is one of the great gifts that the church could give back to the culture, is, is care that looks like common sense. I just, I just don't think... You should, now, how would, how would Paul know this? Well, he's been sailing before, right? I mean, we've done three missionary journeys around that way, and already he's been shipwrecked three times. This is not his first go-round on the shipwreck scene. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, he talks about, I've been shipwrecked three times already, and one time I floated all day and all night in the sea. I mean, the guy knows a little bit about, he's not a sailor, but he knows a little bit, okay? And so, um, he just saying, this is, this is not going to go well. I perceive that it doesn't go well. Do I genuinely care about the well-being of those around me? Second, uh, it, it looks like prayers that get prayed. And so Paul, um, uh, uh, in verse 23, says, This very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. The word there uh, is, is implying that Paul has prayed this. God, would you keep all of us safe? And I'm just not talking about me. I'm talking about all of us on ship. All 275, uh, 276 people, me plus the other 275 people. I, I want you to keep all of them. And the angel comes and shows up and goes, hey, I got good news. God said, you're all going to be safe. Prayers that get prayed. And so when you think about genuinely caring for those who are around you, one of the ways that that care gets expressed is prayers being prayed for their well-being. Now, now sometimes that looks like, God, they are struggling with this, or they are dealing with this, or I see this in their lives, and I'm asking that you would kind of transform them. Sometimes, though, I ask for change in others so that my life is easier. Anybody? Anybody else guilty? That is not what we're talking about when we're talking about genuine care. What we're asking for is, God, that you would transform them for their good. And if it's harder on me, then it's harder. But, but you would transform them. If it costs me something, then it costs me something. You would pray prayers that would benefit them, that would bring, that, that would have a, a goodness to them, well-being. It would bring well-being to them. 
Prayers that get prayed. Uh, thirdly, it looks, like, um, it looks like encouragement. Verse 25. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Uh, Paul stands up and he speaks and he tells them this. Hey, this is what's going on. And sometimes, the, sometimes care looks like identifying the people who are walking around you, who look like they're kind of beat down, their shoulders are slumped, and, and they're just walking with, maybe, maybe you can see, the, or maybe you know them well enough to know the baggage that they're carrying that day. Uh, maybe uh, you, you uh, don't know them well enough, but you just see them and you ask, and they, they kind of open, to, and in that moment right there, you offer them encouragement. Maybe that's what care, genuine care looks like for somebody around you. You, you offer them encouragement. And lastly, um, it, it's simply the, the meeting of needs. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, today's the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Let me just pause right there for just a second. Do you, like, anybody ever been really seasick? I mean, genuinely, anybody want to fess up to it? Did you feel like eating? Okay, so like you read this, you're like, I can't believe 14 days without food. Hey, man, if you are on a small ship getting tossed around in the middle of the med, I'm not thinking you're going, excuse me, can I have the uh, filet with the lobster and the p- potatoes on the side? What are you thinking? I don't think I could throw up anything else unless it's my toenails. I mean, just from the very bottom, right? So it's not surprising that 14 days they haven't eaten or haven't eaten much. Verse 34, therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. Not a hair on your head is to perish, and so forth. So, meeting of needs. Paul just knew, hey, they need strength. Wherever we run aground, whatever's going to happen, they're going to need strength to be able to get off the ship and do the things that need to get done. They need to take food. So, who in your sphere, just think about it for just a second, who in your world right now has a specific need? You got a neighbor whose lawn is too long? Do you have any idea Why? Somebody who's walked through a hard time and, and they need whatever it may be. You just step out into that meeting of needs, whatever it may look like. I, I, I'm thinking very practical here, but it may look like something else, the meeting of needs. Do I genuinely care for those around me? And do I care enough to actually do something about the needs that I can identify and see? It looks like common sense. That's a gift that we can give back to the culture. It looks like prayers being prayed and encouragement and the meeting of needs. Do you genuinely care about those around you? Second question um, that, that stuck with me this week. It's, it's from this verse in verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered the ship's boat, again, the lifeboat, right? They had lowered the ship's boat, in, uh, ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So you get the idea. There's sailors on board. Uh, it's really rough still. And they're thinking, hey, I know what we're going to do. We're going to get the heck off this ship and do our best to make for land. And so they're like, oh, we're going to lower some anchors. We'll be right back. And they start lowering, not anchors, but the boat, thinking, all the, they're just going to jump in and go. Paul sees this. He's like, hey, listen, if, if they jump off, then this is going to be bad for everybody here. Don't, don't do that. And so here's the question that haunted me this week. Do I have a lifeboat? Do I? Do I have a lifeboat? S- something like this. Um, what, is, what is my escape? 
When things go sideways, when things get crazy, when the cortisol levels shoot up, the stress hormone, um, what, what is it that I run to to deal with my anxiety, with my uncertainty, with my stress? What is it that you are prone to run to when you um, feel anxiety or uncertainty or stress? What is your lifeboat? What is your escape? I wrote down a few here. Just see if this rings any bells here. Uh, number one, keeping, is it keeping up appearances? It may be going to hell in a handbasket around you. But by golly, when somebody rings our doorbell, or when we pull into the church parking lot, I may have just beaten my kids, but when they get out, everybody's going to be all right. When somebody rings the doorbell, when we show up at the soccer game, we're just fine. I'm running to, in order to deal with my anxiety, my stress, and, and uh, uncertainty, I'm running to keeping up appearances. Uh, here's another one. The practicing of religion. I don't know what else to do, so I'll just continue these religious practices. Now, they may not mean anything. I may just be spinning wheels up here, but I'm just going to continue religious practices. Um, thirdly, uh, some sense of, or some expression of sexual release, be it positive or negative. Uh, what is my lifeboat? It could be some, some sexual uh, thing. And, and lastly, some sort of anesthetic. And I mean that in the most technical sense, something to numb the pain. But uncertainty, anxiety, stress, it all kind of causes this pain inside of us, right? And so what do I do? What do I do to numb that? Um, could it be I need one more shiner from the fridge? Or could I have just that one more glass of red? Or um, could it be, hey, you know what? I, I want to feel better about this and that. So I, I'm going to um, numb myself um, with uh, a movie or a screen or a game or whatever it may be. There may be any number of things that I, I f escape my life the reality of this, in order to numb my pain, I want to go to some place, I want to participate in something that will allow me to, to not have to deal with it. What is your lifeboat? What is your escape? Now, here, here's, it, just the lie is so evident here. And we see it in the story, and so it's, it's good to say it out loud. The lie is so evident. Okay, let's pretend there's six or eight soldiers here, and they're going to leave, leave a really large ship. Yeah, that's in a bad spot right now, but they're going to leave a really large ship and get on a small lifeboat, maybe the length of this block of chairs right here, in a storm with large waves. That is not a good idea. I mean, you got two oars. You got no provisions because you've all tossed them over. And now, instead of being on a large ship dealing with the waves, you're on a very, very small ship. Instead of being on a ship with a, a ballast anchor in the back and trying to hold things in order, you're on a very, very small ship. So the lie is very evident here. They thought they were escaping via the lifeboat, but what were they escaping to? It was actually a, it was a death boat is what it was. That's all that was going to happen. And the lie is so evident in your life and mine when I choose the route of escape rather than dealing with whatever my mess is, whatever the, the, the uh, temptation is, whatever the issue is. When I choose the lie, when I choose the route of escape, it is the way of death. It is. Instead of bringing it to Jesus and asking him to help me do this, help me engage, uh, engage with this, help me see what I need to see here or hear what I need to hear in this moment, instead of that, getting in a small boat when the waves are high and it's the middle of the night is no safer than trying to hold on to morning. In fact, it's quite the opposite. 
the lifeboat is no lifeboat at all. Okay, second question about having a lifeboat. Um, you see here in verse 30, sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and lower the ship's boat into the sea under pretense. Here's the question. What requires my pretense to maintain? When I talk about a lifeboat, what requires my pretense to maintain? What requires my pretending in order uh, to, to maintain this, because th- this is what happens. Hey, we're, we've got this route of escape. We've got this plan. We've got this thing that's going to that's going to happen. We're going to get out. But but in order to in order to accomplish that, I have to hide. I have to pretend. I have to lie to cover this up. What what in your life requires your pretense in order to maintain? What can you not be authentic about? Here's the, here's the truth. And I actually had a conversation this week about this very thing with um, somebody in a pretty rough spot spiritually. The, the less you hide, the deeper the healing can be. James is very clear about this. James chapter 5, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you would be healed, that you would be made whole. So the less I hide, the deeper the healing can be. And if, but if I'm going to play the game, if I'm going to uh, continue to, to walk in pretense in order to maintain whatever it is that I'm trying to maintain, healing, healing is not guaranteed at all. In fact, it probably won't come. What requires your pretense? Last question on this. What do you not know how to live without? When I'm talking about a lifeboat, I'm talking like, I mean, can you imagine as the soldiers came and cut the ropes away, the horror that, that went across the face of the sailors? Uh, not only are we exposed, but now any hope that we possibly had of getting out of this deal is gone. I don't know how to live without this lifeboat. What, what is that for you? What do you not know how to live without? Again, I wrote a few down. Uh, some people cannot imagine their life without the lifeboat. They have no vision. They have no hope. Uh, they cannot exist without it. They believe that they cannot exist without it. Try on a few of these. I don't believe that I could exist without my anger. I don't know who I am without it. I don't know how to live without my kind of emotional response to things that I perceive are wrong, anger. Um, I don't know how to live without the identity that was spoken over me at some point. Maybe it was a parent who said, you're never going to shape up to be anything. Maybe it was a teacher or a coach or somebody else who spoke identity over you. Maybe it's a spouse or an ex-spouse or even a child who says, I hate you. You're the absolute worst person on the planet, whatever. And you've kind of internalized this. I don't know how to live without that identity that has been spoken over me. Here's another one. I don't know how to live without this habit that I've developed, whatever it may be. I don't know how to live without that. I I can't not have that as a part of my life. I don't know how to, here's a fourth one, I don't know how to live without that someone's attention or affection. I don't think think my life can actually exist without that person's attention or affection. Or lastly, I don't know how to live without this self-constructed reputation. This thing that I wear around uh, to make sure that people understand me and and, uh, appreciate me and respect me, I don't know how to live without that. If people saw the real me, they wouldn't understand or appreciate me uh, or respect me. Therefore, I don't know how to live without that. Does that ring any bells for anybody? 
What do you not know how to live without? Because the, the thing that the lifeboat, I think, symbolizes for you and for me, and the thing that catches, I think, for you and for me, is this idea that um, uh, some people just can't imagine their life without it. And yet storms have a way, and shipwrecks have a way, of showing us that, hey man, it wasn't a good plan in the first place. Th- third question. Do I trust God? So we got, do I genuinely care for the well-being of those around me? Thirdly, or secondly, do I have a lifeboat? And thirdly, do I trust God when it is hardest? Can we back up to verse 20? When neither sun nor stars had appeared for many days, and no small tempest, typhoon, lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. See if this rings true in anybody's life. Do you, do you have this kind of... Um, maybe season of your life, maybe you're in it right now, maybe you're out of it, I hope you are, but that you would describe as dark and hopeless. Dark and hopeless. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us. You're like, huh, that's my life. I am raising a teenager and neither sun nor stars has appeared for many days and a tempest has laid upon us. I am walking through cancer and I can tell you that neither sun nor star has appeared for many days. And no small tempest has laid upon us. I am trying to figure out how to transition from working life to retired life. And what it feels like is that no small tempest has been laid upon me. Or we just had our first baby. No small tempest has been laid. Dark and hopeless. My relationship with this person is in the tank and no small tempest and no sun, no stars and no small tempest has been laid upon us. Do you trust God when it's hardest? Some of you know what dark and hopeless feels like. You, you come to the point where you say like they did, no good can come from this, only bad. Only bad can come. Or maybe it sounds like this, I have been abandoned. That's the mental conversation you have with yourself. There is no way out of this. There is no redemption. There is no uh, 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 movement of God that's going to make this bad become good. There's only bad here. Or, hey, you know what? For some reason, whatever, maybe it's me, maybe it's him, maybe it's the world situation right now. Uh, God's got other things that he's doing and he's not paying attention to me. I have been abandoned. But it was at that point, it was at that point when God spoke. When it was deepest and when it was darkest, when it was most hopeless, it was at that point that God spoke and and that Paul spoke to the people um, at the most dire moment. Listen, at the most dire moment when there are no distractions, God has our attention. And it's oftentimes in those moments where he speaks. When it's most dire and he's got our full attention, no distractions, it's often when he speaks. You know, he's never uh, late but he's hardly ever early in his movement. And, and so he wants your full attention. He wants you to grow in your faith. Okay, second comment here, and then we'll be done. Uh, do I trust God when it's hardest, when it's dark and hopeless, or when there is threat and loss? You remember they took all the wheat and they hurled it over the sea. They pushed the tackle overboard. I mean, they have abandoned ship except for their persons. And then, as if it wasn't enough, 
right? You survive a couple of weeks in the storm, um, and you're like, hey, there's a beach. Let's make for that. They make for the beach, and the bow of the ship gets stuck in the clay there in Malta, which is where they ultimately landed. And then the waves begin to beat against the back of the ship, and the ship begins to break up. And the soldiers are like, uh, forget it. We may die too, but let's be sure that the prisoners don't escape. So Paul has survived two weeks in a shipwreck, and now he's got this sword? Like, come on, man. Like, help a brother out here. Like, what about threat and what about loss? Tr- trusting God when everything's overboard, that's not easy. Uh, when, when we think that the loss of everything that we need has happened, that's a difficult place to trust God. When you and I perceive that the loss of everything that we need, tackle, wheat, whatever it is in your life, that, that's a difficult place to, trust, place to trust God. And then when we survive that and then a sword comes out, you're like, come on, people. Trusting God when death threatens, that's a difficult place. But, but here's the, the kind of ongoing question throughout Back in chapter 23, Jesus uh, appears to Paul in a vision and he says this, you must testify to me, uh, you must testify about the facts of me in Rome. The angel shows up and says, you must testify about the gospel in Rome. Here's the question. This is the ongoing question throughout this whole chapter. Was Jesus kidding or was he serious? I think he was serious. So then Paul knew that some way, somehow, not without loss, not without hardship, not without frustration, not without any number of things, not without any of that stuff, but some way, somehow, he was going to get where? To Rome. Why? Because he had the promise of God that that's what needed to happen. And some of you are in a place where you have a promise of God that you are holding on to dearly. God, I'm going to trust that you're going to be with me through this. And stuff that's happening around you is tempting you to let go of that promise. And Paul is holding fast. And this is such a good challenge for you and for me. Paul is holding fast this promise. You must testify about the facts of me in Rome. Paul's like, well, this shipwreck is really going to stink. But you know where I'm going to end up? Rome. Man. That guy just pulled out a sword. You know where I'm going to end up? In Rome. I don't know how. It may not be without hurt, loss. I may be missing some things when it's all said and done. But somehow, some way, I am going to end up in Rome. I don't know which of those questions haunts you the most. Do you genuinely care? Do you have a lifeboat? Do you trust God when it's hardest? And maybe they're all haunting to you. And maybe you say, hey, I don't think I can actually genuinely care about people. You know what you need if that's the case? The grace of Jesus to wash over you to make you the kind of person who cares. Do you think to yourself, yeah, I've got a lifeboat. It's the USS. Fill in your favorite problem, issue, habit. I've got it right there. In fact, it's parked out in the parking lot right behind my SUV. I've got a lifeboat. You know what you need? You need the grace of Jesus to give you the strength to let go of it and show you that he's enough. You think to yourself, well, 
Do I trust God when it's hardest? Because right now it is dark and hopeless and there is threat and there is loss. You know what you need in that moment? Not to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and hold on. Or just, you need the grace of Jesus to strengthen you, to continue to walk in the things that God has given you to do, to hold on and believe the promises that he's given you. If any of those three questions haunt you, the answer is the same. You need the grace of Jesus. So I'm going to pray and ask for God to give us grace as we take a few minutes to think about this in response. Let's do that together.